Good morning. How are you? Good. Um, my name is R.D. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, my uh, twin daughters decided to get up at 4.30 this morning. So <laughs> I'm going to preach pretty angry. <laughs> so you've been warned. It's not you. It's me. Actually, it's them. It's them. So they're at home now um, just being crazy. And so I'm here. So if I just say things that you're like, that's not what R.D. usually just... That's just what it is. So um, now here, I've been up like eight hours, so we're good to go. Um, hey, I just, I, speaking of that, I recently got back, uh, my wife and I were on vacation and our girls to uh, the great nation of Tennessee for the past couple of weeks, and where my parents live, and last weekend I got to preach at uh, my parents' church in Knoxville, which is great, and uh, joy, but it's, it's good to be back with uh, with you guys, and um, last um, last week, I just reminded again the differences between the South and you, <laughs> between the South and you people that I'm happy to be a part of, but uh, not where I was born and raised. And so, as an example of of that, I shared this with I shared this with them uh, when I was uh, teaching last week, and I said um, my wife and I were hanging out downtown Knoxville, and I sneezed. Okay, you're thinking what? This has no deeper point to the message. It's just, I'm just sharing this with you. And uh, so I, I sneezed, and I, I reminded the time when I did that a year or two ago when my wife and I were hanging around uh, Willie Street and uh, the Atwood neighborhood. And so I sneezed, and all of a sudden, there's these two women who are walking past, and they just go, bless you. Not, uh, she goes, bless you. Not that I'm religious. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's great. It's like, actually, I'm still offended. So you should not even say bless, because I'm... I was like, it's fine. You didn't even say any type of, it's totally cool. And she just wants to like, make sure that she wasn't trying to convert. I was like, it's totally okay. And we just kept walking. I was like, there you go. And so I had it in my mind as I had sneezed in, in Knoxville. And I was like, I remember that? And I was about to say it to Emily. And this woman comes walking by like from God himself. And she just like rings out and she's like, God bless you. I was like... <laughs> I became a Christian right there. And like in that moment, there was that third conversion. It was just like, yes, <laughs> yes, he did. And uh, so anyway, so that was, just, it was just fun. And you just know the way, in the, just the world that we live in and what Madison is like, which is why it's a great, great place to do ministry and to be a light for, for Jesus. And so it's great to uh, be with you. And in that vein, we want to talk about Jesus and he's the focus of uh, really everything and today's message. So you have a Bible, um, grab it, be in Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, why? <laughs> right, right, You're, you came to church, so hopefully it should not be a surprise. Um, we have some at the back, you can get it on your phone, but it'd be great if you had one with you in front of you that you actually had that was um, your own. So we'll be in Luke chapter 19, the gospel according to Luke chapter 19, and we're looking at two stories that actually um, are tied together. They may seem very different, but they have something which, which unites them together. And Luke, the gospel writer, wants us to know that they belong together. And so we're coming to Luke chapter 19, and we're beginning, Luke is slowing down his narrative. And he's taking actually the last six chapters of his gospel to cover one week in the life of Jesus, where the, the first 18 chapters covered three years. And so we see the importance of the final week. And so what we have here is the, is the um, salvation of Zacchaeus, the wee, wee little man. And we have the parable of the 10 pounds or the 10 minas. And so this is happening probably Thursday or Friday before Palm Sunday, what will become Palm Sunday. 
and Passion Week. And actually, it's Passover week in the first century. And so when you're reading Luke chapter 19, that's what time it is. It's probably Thursday or Friday before the final week of the life of Jesus. And so things are ratcheting up in pressure. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. He's been heading there since Luke chapter 9, but it's just taken him a while to get there. But he's on his way. He's in Jericho, which is where this first part happens, which is 17 miles from Jerusalem. You can almost see it from there. And so he's approaching Jerusalem, where he will be crucified, and then where he will rise again. But before he gets there, he has more things he wants to say about what salvation is, about what hope is, and about what it looks like in between his first coming and his second coming. And that's what we want to look at today, the story of a wee, wee, wee little man named Zacchaeus, who is just a model of God's grace and of God's justice coming to a person. Verse 1 of chapter 19, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's just passing through Jericho. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Okay, stop there. I promise I won't stop at every verse. Um, uh, Zacchaeus is, is Jewish, most likely, and he is the chief tax collector. And so remember, um, in first century Palestine, they're in the Roman Empire. And so they're not self-governing, they're not sovereign, they're under the boot of Rome. And Rome, like any good country, collects taxes. And they want to get these taxes for the money. And so they would assign tax collectors who would have a certain percentage they'd have to kick back to Rome, but then they themselves could also have some for themselves. Right, you see what I mean? They get a little something for them. And so Zacchaeus was wealthy, not because he built a business, right, started Google or YouTube, okay, that's not Zacchaeus. He was wealthy because it was built on the backs of people, his own people, who, who were um, slaves, basically, to the Romans, and he built his money off of taxing them, and taxing them at a high level, so he could have a nice place, he could have nice clothes, he could be basically about himself. And so by him being a collaborator with the Roman Empire, he's facilitating injustice and poverty and his own people are suffering and he's at the center of that. And he's okay with that because he gets his. And that's Zacchaeus. He's not just kind of an innocent guy who needs God's grace. He's not a good guy at all. And he's wealthy and he's a tax collector. And everyone in Jericho would not like him. And everyone in Jericho would think, if there's one person who is not going to be a part of the kingdom that is coming, it's Zacchaeus. So, right, we're good. <laughs> and who does Jesus single out? That's what Jesus does. So this is who Zacchaeus is. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. He's curious. I love that. Stay curious. <laughs> Okay, be curious about Jesus. He's heard about the wandering rabbi, or Jesus has been walking around for three years. He's curious about who this rabbi is, what his teachings are about. He's probably heard about the kingdom of God. Right? Is it different from the kingdom of, of Rome? And so he wants to learn more about this Jesus. But the crowd's not going to let him through because, like, dude, Zacchaeus, you're short, so just stay in the back. We don't like you. You're not going to get to see Jesus. This is a big deal. He's coming through. And so he's trying to maybe jump over the crowd, all this stuff, and he can't. He can't get to him. So what's he do? As a Jewish man, you would never do this, but he does. He runs, and he climbs a sycamore tree. And a sycamore tree would likely have been built just outside the city because of restrictions about what trees could be in the city. And so he goes to a tree almost on the outskirts of the city, and he climbs up it because, you know, Jesus will be leaving the city, and he'll be going towards Jerusalem. And so he climbs up the tree because he wants to see Jesus, but he also wants to kind of stay hidden somewhat. So he's like hanging on to like a tree like that, and he's just watching Jesus as he comes through, hoping probably that he can see Jesus, but Jesus won't actually stop because <laughs> that would be awkward. <laughs> And so all these people are around Jesus saying, stop, stop, stop. And Jesus, just, he's just going through. 
And then he comes to the tree. I love this. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said, hey, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Jesus, always inviting himself where he's uninvited, <laughs> which is good news. <laughs> so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Zacchaeus is like, sweet, curiosity. I want to have more. I get to talk to Jesus. And so he comes down immediately and he welcomes him gladly. Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter as people of faith can sometimes do. <laughs> they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Because right? they're thinking, not this man. There's so many other good people in this good, upstanding Jewish people. Why don't you go eat with them? And so what's about to happen is that Jesus is about to have a meal with them. We don't know if it was lunch or dinner, but he's about to go have a meal with them, which is a great sign of acceptance and a great sign, right, of just welcoming and hospitality, much more so than in our culture. If you sit around the table with someone in the first century, there's this real sense of family. They're thinking, this is, this is unbelievable. Our categories are once again being blown up. And what I love here is that all the anger at first is at Zacchaeus. And Jesus could easily say when he's up in the tree, he could say, I know why you're hiding. You are evil. You are oppressing your own people. Quit doing that. Repent. And then Jesus could just go on his way. And you can imagine everyone would just celebrate. Be like, yeah, Jesus, take it to the man. Rome's going to die. But what does Jesus say? He says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to go stay at your house. And they're like, Oh, Jesus, stop it. We don't. <laughs> what are you doing? And so now Jesus identifies himself with Zacchaeus. And the anger of the crowd now turns towards Jesus because he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. He's gone to sit around the table with a lot of sinners. And that's good news, though, because all of us are sinners. All of us are like Zacchaeus. And so what we see here, though, is something unbelievably profound in verses 8 through 9. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today's salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Okay, if you're reading closely, you're probably wondering, well, what happens between verse 7 and verse 8? <laughs> Why does Zacchaeus just randomly stand up and say, look, Lord, here and now, if I've cheated anyone, I'm going to pay him back. Whatever I've done wrong, I, I want to be a changed man right now. What, what happens? And so here we have something really interesting. Usually Luke, the gospel writer, shows us what happens in the interaction between someone and Jesus and how they come to faith, whether it's through repentance or confession or they fall at the feet of Jesus. And we don't usually see what happens after that, Right? They go on their own way, and we just kind of wonder, well, what I wonder what happened to them. And here, Luke gives us a different account. He doesn't show us what happens at dinner, but he shows us what happens after Jesus and Zacchaeus interacted at dinner. He shows us what a changed man looks like, how he reacts, what he does. And so we don't know what happened at dinner, but we do know, right? Because not only is Jesus the guest of sinners, Jesus is the Savior of sinners, and whatever their conversation was, it must have changed Zacchaeus on the spot. Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God, saying this is the way the world should be, and I've come to usher in this kingdom, and you, Zacchaeus, can be a part of it. You don't have to live the way that you are living. And it must have just keep going on and on and on. And all of a sudden, Zacchaeus, just, he, said, he stands up. He's like, look, Lord, here and now, not in the future. Right now, I want to change because I've been changed. Right, I love this. 
Because sometimes we want to figure out, okay, now when did you come to faith? And, and give me the details of your conversion. Now when did you repent? And was it a genuine repentance? And it can just be all this craziness. And not that we shouldn't repent and confess, but um, it reminds me of a guy I knew in high school who was just kind of super far from the Lord. And I just was, you know, praying for him like, man, I hope Jesus gets a hold of your heart because I can just see it going south. <laughs> And just based on how the conversations we would have, he was living in one direction and, and my life was headed in a different direction. And so a few years ago, I ran into him again. And for like the first minute of our conversation, I knew that Jesus had changed his life. Now, did I ask him, now, now remind me again, when did you confess your sins? <laughs> now, when did you repent? No, I didn't have to ask that because I knew that had already happened. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having the conversation we did. See, Zacchaeus has been changed, and we don't have to know the exact details of what happened around the table because we know what it looks like when Jesus grabs hold of your heart. This man who's been pursuing injustice now becomes someone who pursues justice, right? He's been robbing the people. He's been making Jericho more and more impoverished, and now the salvation that's come to this house will change Jericho. All right, do you see that? See, God's salvation does not terminate on you. God's salvation comes to you and then pushes you out into the world for the sake of the good of the world. Zacchaeus does not say, yes, I've been saved. Let me sit here and wait for heaven. Burn, Jericho. Right? He says, no, heaven's come down and touched me. And I want heaven to come into Jericho as well. That's what I love about this. If God's grace has really changed your life, you will go out and change the world. If the new creation has come, you will go herald that the new creation has come in you. And one day it's coming into the world. Zacchaeus has changed. And his change will change Jericho. That's what God's grace does. Because that's who Jesus is. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. Not to shame and to scold the lost. Not to yell at them. Not to just say, you're lost. Come find me. I hope you can. No, he came to seek and to save. And so though Zacchaeus had curiosity, it was Jesus' intentionality which ultimately collided with his curiosity and rescued him and saved him. Friends, stay curious about Jesus, but always remember that Jesus is the one who makes the first move. He seeks and he saves you. He does it first, thankfully. That's who he is. That's what the purpose of Jesus' life is, to seek and to save the lost. Right, we, look, we studied this earlier in Luke. If you remember, it was like four years ago when we started Luke. But Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns like Jericho also because that is why I was sent. Sent by whom? By God the Father. For what purpose? To proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That the reign of God has come on earth. That new creation has burst right into the middle of the old. That things are no longer the same that they used to be. That people are no longer the same. And that cities and society will no longer be the same. Things are different because the future has come into the present. And everything is different. And Zacchaeus is a testimony of that. And you, if you are in Christ, are a testimony of that. You've been raised from death to life. That's new creation. That's what Jesus, that's the center of his mission. To seek and to save to announce the good news of the reign of God on earth. And you and I can be a part of it. That's good news. That's, the gospel. That's gospel news. That's the story of Zacchaeus. Today, salvation has come to this house. Salvation is transformational in your own heart and in the lives of people around you. Okay. 
Good. Next one. Verse 11. While they were, here's how they tie together. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Okay, stop there. This is really important. Um, I want you to know, I'm, I'm sure you probably do not. I just want to remind you that the Bible is not a math book. <laughs> Thank you, RD. Thanks. I'm glad I came to church this morning, right? You can tweet that, right? The Bible is not a math book. The Bible is not a science book. But also, the Bible is not just a set of propositional truths. The Bible is actually a story. It's a story of a creator God who made a world, a kingdom, where a man and woman dwell together and rule and reign with him. But they've sent themselves into their own exile by their sin. But the creator God has made a covenant with them that he will pursue them. And he makes a covenant people, the people of Israel. And he pursues them. Even though they run away from him and fall away from him, he pursues them. He makes a covenant with their father Abraham that one day all nations will be blessed through them. And the central hope of the Jewish people is not that one day they will go to heaven when they die, but that one day God will become king again. That God will ultimately rescue them from exile and he will renew everything. Right? That the enemy, that Rome will be vanquished. That, that God will be on the throne again. That Yahweh will come back to Jerusalem. And they're waiting for this. And they've been under oppression. They've been in Babylon. They've been in exile. And now Rome is their occupier. And they're thinking, when will God become king? When will what he promised he would do actually come true? And if you read the prophets, you cannot miss this. The prophets are saying, one day God will come back for us. One day he will come on the throne again. And when he comes, everything will be new. That's what they're hoping Jesus is going to do. That's what they're hoping he will do. You just read the prophets, and this is what we see. Zechariah 8, 3. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Joel 3, 16 through 17. If you didn't know there was a book called Joel, now you know. Joel 3, 16 through 17. The Lord will roar. From Zion, the thunder from, and thunder from Jerusalem, the earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. Here is the great hope of the Jewish people, right? What John 3.16 is for us, Joel 3.16 is for the people of Israel. That one day God will come back. And everything wrong will be turned around. See, and you and I are a part of that story. But it doesn't begin with you and I, right? We're a part of it, but it's not openly about us, right? The Bible's not ultimately about you or me. The Bible's ultimately about God and the story of redemption that he is writing. And you and I are a part of it. But if we don't read the Old Testament, if we don't realize that we're a part of the story, then we'll just get all this crazy, confusing stuff going on in our mind. and saying, well, what does the Bible have to say to me? And that's not the way to read the Bible. You read the Bible to get swept up in the story of what God is doing that you get to be a part of. And so in verse 11, what we see here is that expectations are sky high, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And when he gets to Jerusalem, just 17 miles away, the kingdom of God will come like that, and the enemies will be vanquished. This is the one they've been waiting for for thousands and thousands of years. That's, that's what verse 11 is about. And that's why there is such devastation when the one they thought would redeem Israel is crucified on a cross. Because this is not how Yahweh becomes the king. Dying and mocked and bloody and dead. This is not how God reigns. 
right? Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, how disappointed they are. What they don't say is that, to Jesus, (laughs) we thought he was the one who could forgive us our sins, though that's important. They say, we thought he was the one who could redeem Israel. We thought he was the one in whom the great story we've been in our whole lives would finally be concluded. But it appears that he's just a man and he died. And Jesus says to them, he begins with the book of Genesis and he has the best Bible study in the history of Bible studies. And what Luke records is that Jesus walks through the entire Old Testament. He says, all of this was about me. I'm the greater Abraham. I'm the greater David. I'm the greater Moses. I'm the great king. But what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, here's the deal. When I go to Jerusalem, it's not the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the cross-filled life. And so the point of the parable that we're about to read is this. You and I live in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And how do we live in the middle of that? And that's what this parable is. How do we live in the middle of the story? Faithfully and fruitfully. Verse 12. Jesus said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas, which is about uh, three months worth of wages. So not a ton, but enough. Put this money to work, he said. Literally in the Greek, do business, do, do work with this. He said, until I come back. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, who's that about? Right, a parable literally means to lay alongside something. And so Jesus is teaching a parable that has all of these um, signs that point to the reality of what's going on right now. Because Jesus ultimately is the king. Right? And he's come. And when he resurrected and ascended to God the Father, he became the true king. And one day, he's coming back. And in the meantime, he says, hey, guys, guess what? There's work to do. There's work that you have to do until I come back. There's business that you have to do. And it's not about like investing money in the stock market. That's not the entirety of the kingdom of God message. It's about how are you investing everything that I've given you? I've given you all of these things. How are you investing it until I come back for you? Do you believe that I'm coming back for you? Do you trust that I'm coming back for you? His subjects, they hated him and they said, we don't want this man to be our king. We don't, we don't want him to be our king. Actually, this comes from a historical um, reality. Like in the 4th century BC, um, there was a guy named Archelaus who um, wanted to rule over the people of Israel. And so he went to Rome to have them pat him on the head and become king, basically. And so what happens in that day, what the people would understand Jesus saying is that if you wanted to become a king, you had to travel all the way to Rome. They would kind of size you up and say, okay, you can be a king. Go back to your people and go be a king over them. And so in the fourth century BC, this guy named Archelaus, he went to Rome. They said, actually, you're kind of crazy because all of these Jewish people also went to Rome and said, we don't want him to be our king, which is what the parable is also alluding to. We don't want him to be our king. And so they're like, okay. You're going to be like, not a king, but you're still going to have some power. And so in the ears of everyone listening, they're thinking, wait, is Jesus talking about about that? Because it had just happened a few years before. Now that's in their mind, but he's not ultimately talking about that. He's ultimately talking about himself. And this is how the rest of the parable reads. Jesus, of course, he was made a king. (laughs) However, and he returned home. 
Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. And his master answered, You take charge of five cities. So we have these first two servants, and they do a great job. They invest well in the work of the kingdom because they trusted the king. Right? They knew the king. They trusted him. The Greek word there that's translated trustworthy is pistos, which means trustworthy or faithful or believing. In their hearts, they believed in the king. And so all they did in his absence was work for him so that when he came back, they could show him, look at all that we've done for you, king, because of how good you've been to us. You gave all of this to us, and we just want to pay you back in some way. And the king says, well done. Well done. He gives them a reward. He gives them even more responsibility with what they've given. I love what they say. They say, your mina has earned 10 more, not we have earned 10 more. We have done this. Pat us on the back, king. They say, no, what you've given us, you've made it grow. We've just been faithful stewards of it all. all right, and that's the call on our life as well, to use the resources and the, and the people that God has given you for the glory of God and for the good of other people. So whatever domain that you're in, right, however, in your business, in your job, in your parenting, right, in your singleness, at your college, all the areas where God has you, he's saying, how are you living your life in the reality that I've come and that I've coming? How do you live in that reality by the way in which everything that I've given you honors me and serves to bless other people? That's what Zacchaeus does with his life, and that's the call on you in my life as well. Steward well everything in your life for the glory of the coming king. Because one day he's coming back and he's going to ask you, hey, what did you do with what you knew? Well, as always in a parable, there's the not good example, and that takes up most of the parable because it's really, really important. The third servant, he, he misses the mark. <laughs> then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not sow and put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not. So why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And so this third servant, the, the biggest problem that he has is that he didn't know, he didn't trust, he wasn't faithful, he didn't believe in the king. And so he did nothing. And he throws up a smoke screen and he says, well, you're a hard man. So that's why I did nothing, because I was afraid that you were just going to take it anyway. So why bother? And the king says, oh, you heard I was a hard man, did you? Which he's not saying that he is. He's just saying, you heard that. And he's still like, then why did you do nothing? Why wouldn't you at least put it in the bank so that they could get interest? You did nothing. You were faithless and fruitless, while the others were faithful and fruitful. And the difference between them both is the trust that they had that the king had come and that the king is coming. All right, do you see the connections the parable is making here? See, if, if we don't use the resources that God has given us for his glory in serving him, then what happens at the end of the parable will happen to all of us. The parable ends with these, this stark warning. Jesus here is using vivid language 
Then he said, the king said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Okay. The parable ends on a pretty serious note. Now, parables are not just, right, again, the, the Bible's not a math book, and so it's not the reality that the heart of Jesus is to have people killed in front of him, right? Jesus here is using vivid language to elicit a response in the people listening to say, I'm coming, and if you do nothing with what I've given you, you will face a certain kind of death. You will face the ultimate exile from my presence, right? And it doesn't matter if you think that I'm hard or if you think that I'm vindictive. You need to know who I am. You need to trust me to know that I'm good, to know that I'm generous. See, your view of God shapes how you live your life. If you see God as good, if you see God as generous, that determines how you live. But if, like the third servant, you say, no, God, you're hard. God, you're mean. God, you're vindictive. God, you're evil. Then you're going to live a completely different way for God or not live for him at all. And the consequences are serious. And so the last verse here is just should make your heart stop at least a little bit. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Okay. I thought about, I read the last verse for a lot of times, and I just thought, I don't want to preach on that. <laughs> Let's talk about the happy parts of the parable, right? I just, you know, if you've ever talked about the Bible, you come across those verses that just make you like, be like, oh, I don't know how that squares with the character of God. And so let's just talk about the other parts. But I, I, you know, let's just delve into what this verse means. Why does Jesus close the parable this way? I want to look. Here's what I think. Here's what I think. What we see is Jesus is not speaking literally. He's speaking metaphorically. What we see is that Jesus, the king, says, hey, bring the people in front of me who refuse to obey me and have them killed in front of me. What, what we see is the order to be killed, but we don't see it actually happening, right? We don't see them actually being killed. And so, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, God, that's pretty tough for people who refuse to be, for him to be their king. Look, here's the deal. All of us have refused Jesus to be our king. And so all of us are deserving of death. All of us are deserving of ultimate exile. There's no one who says at first, we're so glad you're our king. All of us, like the people at the beginning of the parable, say, we don't want you to be our king. We want to be our own kings and queens. We want to be on the throne. Thanks, Jesus, for your help. We got it from here. But instead of getting what we deserve, which is, in a sense, to be killed, we know the heart of Jesus is a heart to save because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Right? And so... Jesus, through his life and through his resurrection, he receives death. He's the one who's ultimately slaughtered and killed before the entire creation. So that you and I, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, we can live. Because even those of us who've refused 
his kingship over us, he still come to us like Zacchaeus and says, hey, come down from the tree. I'm inviting myself over. I know you didn't ask for it. I know you didn't want it, but I'm coming in because that's what grace does. And the good news of King Jesus is that he comes into our homes. He comes into our houses. He comes into our hearts. And he says, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to come before me and be exiled forever. I long for you to enter into the joy of your master. I long for you to come home. And I will do anything to make that happen. That's the heart of King Jesus. And that's why when you read this verse, at first you say, what a hard king. Who would ever do this? But you have to remember, in only about nine days, what will this king do? He will 17 miles away walk up a hill and go to a cross because that's how you enter into the kingdom of God through suffering. That's what power looks like in the kingdom of God. That's a good king. That's a king. When, when you get a, a vision of that king, when you get a sense of that king, you'll say, all the minas I have, all the pounds I have, everything that I have, it's yours to so do whatever you want with. Grow it, Lord. Produce it, Lord. Produce in me a new heart and, and new affection. I know you're absent, but one day I know you're appearing again. And in the middle of your absence, you've given us the assurance of your presence through the Spirit. Right? Jesus is God with us. The Spirit is God in us, with us every single day pointing us back to Jesus. Remember the cross, remember Easter Sunday, and look forward to his appearing when, guess what, you and I will be fully like him. Our great hope is that when Jesus appears, basically like from um, kind of behind the veil that now separates heaven and earth, when he appears from behind the veil, we shall be like him. And if you have that hope, you will invest your life in things of the kingdom. This is what John writes in 1 John chapter 3. It couldn't be more clear, guys. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Amen. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is our great hope. This is the hope, right, that Zacchaeus had after Jesus met him and grace just collided with his life. This is the hope, right, that Jesus wants all of us to have, to live in the middle of the already and the not yet. And all those who have this hope purify themselves, right? You live differently. You love differently. You do things differently, not because you're awesome or because you're great or because you made everything, but because God has been gracious to you and God has given you all things to use to bless others, to love others, to serve others, to lay your life down for others, because that's what Jesus did. He says, go do likewise. Go do likewise in the power of the spirit that the world would look different in 2015 and 2016 than it did. That's what the church does. We live in the middle of the already and the not yet and we point to the past and we say, there's our king on the cross and we point to the future and say, here's our king coming for us. And we know that he is. And so we live in the reality that he's come and that he's coming. How do you live like that? Do you feel the weight of that, the joy of that, the wonder of that? You have to. We have to be people like that. that literally, it's just hairs are sticking up on me right now as I talk about it. Do you feel that? And I pray that you would. 
and not just for your own sake, but for the sake of your friends who don't know, for our city that doesn't know, that the glory of God would cover the water, right? That the glory of God would cover the land as the waters cover the sea, and that the great Jewish hope that one day everything will be renewed is really true. And we get to be a part of seeing it happen through the Spirit in the church. So stay curious. Stay faithful. Let Jesus surprise you over and over again. Be trustworthy. Love him for him. He'll grow it all for his glory and for the good of others. Let's pray. Our Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, how we love you for who you are and for what you've done, for the beauty of your son, Jesus, for the power of your spirit that lives in us, that powers the church. Father, I pray that we, like Zacchaeus, would just be curious and then you would just run into us and change us. That we would be people who use all of the resources that you've given us for the glory of your name, for the good of our city, to bless and to serve others. Not that we could have a great name, but that your name would be remembered. Father, help us be a people who look to our suffering king, the one who was slaughtered and killed in front of all of the world so that we could have life, life right now and life to come. Father, we long for your coming. We long for your appearing when we shall see you face to face. And everything we've known, we will know. In the name of the Father and the Son, and by the power of the Spirit, and all God's people proclaimed, amen. amen.